On February 1, 2003, Space Shuttle Columbia broke apart over Texas and Louisiana as it returned from a 16-day mission from space. The cause of the accident was a piece of foam that had fallen off the shuttle's external tank during launch. The foam struck the left wing of the shuttle, causing serious damage that ultimately led the vehicle to break apart when it re-entered Earth's atmosphere. It was the second major failure for the space shuttle program, and all seven crew members on board the vehicle died. It was a very tragic loss for NASA, but it was also a very difficult time personally for me and my family. My parents were both working the mission the day of the accident, and they spent many long days investigating what happened for months afterward. So today, I invited my parents, Jean and Joyce Grush, to talk to me about their experiences. So say hello, guys. Hello, Lauren. Hello. <laughs> Hi. So uh, let's back up and talk about the actual goal of this mission. It was called STS-107, and it was a space hab mission, which is different from going to the space station or the Hubble Space Telescope, right? So what exactly is space hab? And uh, Mom, you said this was a particularly the parameters of this were just not the best to have an accident on, right? That's correct. The space hab was a, a module in the, in the uh, payload bay where they could do um, microgravity um, experiments. So it's so kind of like what you do on the space station now, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Right. Um, also, this was uh, put up um, in a trajectory that wasn't anywhere near the station. I don't even know how much the station could have helped out if we were near it, but we couldn't even get to the station from where we were put up. So even if you had known that this was going to be a problem or that you had to do some emergency procedure, you probably couldn't have gotten to the space station. No, no, I don't believe so. And you were probably at a much lower altitude than the space station, so doing the, the burns necessary to get to the space station, we may not have had the propeller right, right. and still come home. So um, if we had known that there was a problem, we would have probably have had to launch another shuttle to get to these guys, um, especially, which would mean, of course, that we would be launching in a similar environment that had caused the original accident. So, and we would have had to turn a vehicle around faster than we've ever turned a vehicle around to get to them. So it would have been, I'm not saying we shouldn't have tried, but I'm just saying it would have been an unbelievable rescue um, scenario to get to these guys. But, you know, I'm not telling you we shouldn't have given it our best shot or anything. Right. And we'll get to, you know, what you guys were thinking during that time. So the day Columbia launched from Cape Canaveral was June, January 16th. And uh, you guys knew the foam had hit the wing pretty much right away. So first off, what is this foam that's around the external tank. Why is there foam in the first place? Well, this was a specific joint on the external tank and they put a some kind of a foam around it to, to make sure that the heat doesn't get into the external tank and uh, affect the propellants. You want to keep the propellants cool so you've got a lot of insulation around the external tank and this is a specific joint so it had a molded type insulation that uh, was fragile and, and broke off during ascent. A long time before this, or maybe a few years before that, certain uh, EPA requirements had required that we change the um, constituents in the foam. And when that happened... What do you mean by constituents? Well, okay. they were, they were uh, uh, phasing out fluorocarbons, so we had to co come in with a different type of freon-type fluid that was used in the manufacture of the foam and the, it made the foam more brittle. And, more brittle, and, and we started having uh, releases from the tank that at a much quicker rate and more density of it than we'd had before. So foam had been breaking off the tank before this, right? 
Yeah, in fact, uh, two flights prior to this, uh, a, a piece of foam in basically the same area of the external tank uh, broke off uh, and uh, impacted the, the bottom of the SRB. The solid rocket booster. So let's talk about the foam that hit this wing. You guys knew it was, you saw, you saw it, in, did you see it in the video? You know, how did you guys know that the foam had hit the wing during launch? We did not know about the foam coming off, I believe, that first day, okay? I think, if I remember right, it wasn't brought to our attention to, until the next day. Maybe when they were looking at the uh, high-speed um, video. What I do remember, Lauren, was everything went fine during that launch. It was a beautiful launch, and um, there was no major issues on orbit at all. Matter of fact, my remembrance is there was no major issues on the orbiter through the whole mission. We, the orbiter was working very well. I was told by my boss and also by the head, I believe, of uh, USA, the United Space Alliance people, or the engineering head, that there had been this sighting of foam material going over the edge, or at least being exposed by uh, past the uh, wingling edge on or the wing on the left side. So I said to him, I said, well, I think I better go call the... Um, the structures group, you know, the people in our group that are experts in, in orbiter structure and in the thermal protection system, and have them go ahead and look at this, and they absolutely agreed. So that's when I went and called our division chief engineer over in the structures group and got him and the team working on it, and also the uh, thermal protection team. Let's talk about the foam, too, because the foam obviously is it's pretty light, right? It wasn't a very heavy piece of material, but what was the concern? It was just going so fast, right? So fast, yeah. How, so do you know how fast it was going? Like, what part of the launch was it? So, basically, you think the foam's going fast. It's really the vehicle going fast. Right. Mm -hmm. When the foam breaks off, the air slows the foam down at such a high rate that by the time it's impacting the... Uh, the orbiter is going near the speed of sound, if not faster than the speed of sound. So, so think of it this way. You're driving down the road. This is what a lot of us thought about after mm -hmm. we finally got our head around this concept. And somebody, and you're driving at about 60 or 70 miles an hour, and a car in front of you is driving about the same speed, and they accidentally let a suitcase go flying out, a soft suitcase go flying out of the back end of that car, and it impacts the glass of your um, of your, your your front windshield. Think about how that would happen. Right, and you were telling me that. So you guys investigated the heck out of this foam. So what was the verdict about the foam? Well, first let me give you an idea. Many people thought that the reinforced carbon carbon, the RCC, which makes up the edge of the wings and takes the hit of the when they're coming in um, for reentry. Uh, takes the, the thermal and the structural impact from doing that. Um, they thought that the RCC could take a lot of, of wear and tear and, and impacts and not be a problem. So what most of the people that were concerned about was the tile. The tile is very, you know, it's not fragile, but it's brittle. And it, it uh, is something that you don't even, you're careful even when you're installing it. You're careful when you're handling it. You don't kick it with your feet, the whole thing. So they were concerned, well, maybe it had hit the tile. Now, explain the tile. Does the tile overlay the wing leading edge? This is the edge of the wing. No, right? what it does is it overlays the bottom of the vehicle and, and up around the sides where we have some heat concerns coming in. Again, the wing leading edge itself is covered with this very strong RCC that uh, 
can handle very high temperatures mm -hmm. and uh, is made specifically to protect the edge of the wing when we're coming in. But the whole bottom of the vehicle is covered with the TPS, the tile, and it, like I said, is not great about taking impacts. So um, there was a lot of concern about could the tile handle it. The, the basic verdict was that there was more concern about how the foam would hit would affect the tile, but not right. as much concern about this um, carbon, this reinforced carbon, and that ultimately was the problem. So the final verdict was you guys were okay. Now I will tell you there was still some concern. Um, you know you're never a hundred percent risk-free when you do these analyses, when you don't have direct insight in what really happened. Mm -hmm. So people were aware that there was some risk, but they felt that the risk was acceptable. I, but let me tell you another thing too. There was a lot of desire to get a photograph of where this thing had impacted so we would know exactly where it hit and if there was damage. I am not privy to what kind of uh, capability there was to see this damage, what kind of satellites or special equipment uh, was available maybe from the military, but I know there was a desire and that desire was communicated several times to a certain management. I think it went up pretty far and it was not um, encouraged, let me just put it that way, by certain folks. I can't, I was not in those meetings. I don't know why it wasn't encouraged. I just know it was not encouraged. And people were encouraged instead to do the kind of analysis that was done, which is, you know, assume the worst case, where would it hit, what could it do, that kind of a thing. How do you feel now, 14 years later, about the verdict that you guys made to move forward with the mission? Well, you know, I grew a lot from this experience. What a horrible way to grow, but I grew a lot from this experience. I would say all of us did. I relied on the report I heard. Now, I was sitting at the table, and we had the mic on with all these other centers on. And honestly, I almost asked Lauren right at that point, does this mean we don't need to take the picture? And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know how these pictures are taken. I don't know how secret they are. I probably shouldn't be asking this question on the loop. So I thought, I will go and check with all these guys after the meeting's over. So I went walked. As soon as that meeting was over, I only had a few minutes to go. And I went over to all the folks that were sitting against the, the wall there, and I said, you're good, huh? And they said, yeah, we feel pretty good. And I said, so we don't need anything else. We don't need any kind of anything else. And they all gave me this nod. Of course, later, looking back, I probably should have pressed harder. Yeah, so how do you feel that you didn't ask that question during the meeting? I feel terrible. I feel terrible. I mean, it wasn't... I, it wasn't a mistake as I think in, in that I was accepting what my management was saying, but in later years when I, I would have asked any question after that, I didn't care who was on the loop. So I learned that you just do not be afraid to ask questions. So let's go to the day of the reentry. Now, my memory of you guys working missions is that you had the worst hours. Uh, like mom would have to wake up at like two in the morning dad would have to go in super late at night. And I, this one was an early morning mission too. Deorbit burn happens at 8.15 a.m. Eastern time. So you must have gotten pretty, up pretty early for this mission, right? Yeah, we came in pretty early for landing, but more like a couple hours for landing, yeah. So we probably got in around five or six. Right, actually, I might have gone in a little earlier because we had the deorbit burns to worry about. We had all those discussions. So yeah, I'd say about 
four or five, five or six, something around that. I don't remember. Right. And just for those who don't know, deorbit burn is the burn that the shuttle makes to take itself out of orbit and then to do the landing. Okay, so mom, you've been working this mission for the most of the time. Dad, you're you just now came in for the landing part, right? Yeah, I mean I was working the mission but not working the problem Joyce was Okay. So where were you guys? Uh, were you in mission control when this happened? Where, where was, what was your experience when uh, things started to go south? Okay, so where are all, all the uh, sustaining, supporting engineers knowing the, the vehicle? So there's a special room called the mission evaluation room where all the design engineers for the vehicle support the flight. Uh, since we don't worry about the flight rules or operating the flight, we're in a support mode. So it's a big room, uh, and it's shared with the space station engineers also. At the and, time, yeah. And, but we had the room by ourselves for entry. You were both in there together? Yeah. In fact, we were standing side by side. We were watching the hydraulic system because, you know, they're turning on their auxiliary power unit to power up the hydraulic system. And it's just an active system during entry to, to maneuver all the aero surfaces and all that. So and we're, and we're watching over there. Shoulders. Okay, so you're standing side by side, and then what was the first sign that something was wrong? Because I was I was watching the tapes, and from NASA TV, somebody says Roger on the comp system, and then it cuts out right in the middle of his speech. Was that the first indication when you guys lost communication? Uh, no. I would say there's about four or five people in the world, unfortunately, that saw the accident starting to happen, and we were two, well, including my team that was there. The hydraulics showed it first because the hydraulics had lines and sensors that were right in the wing. And so when we saw some sensors going out, the temperature sensors going out on the left side of the vehicle in the left wing. And then I asked Joyce, what side did the phone hit, hit on? And that's when I knew and I turned to him and I said, oh my God. Because we both of us looked, I think we both knew right at that moment when... Well, we started to worry. Oh, big, big time. So we stood there and we saw the sensors were gone and I think... About that time, I went. I said, I'm going to go up to the front, and I went over to where the, the lead, I'm, I'm having the, sh the shakes right now thinking about this. I went over to um, the um, mission management, or, or the MER managers that are up front, and I think by that time they were trying, you know, they were starting to see the same things that we were. And I said, what do you, and I said to one of my best friends there who was the lead MER manager, and I said, what do you think's happening? He says, I think we're losing this vehicle. And I remember I started shaking really hard. That's when I think they were trying to reach the crew. On the, and uh, that's pretty horrible. Um, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. and hope I never will again. You guys always would say this to me, that um, whenever there was an accident or some kind of failure, they lock the doors, which always sounded so ominous. So why do they do that? Is that just to keep you guys to, to start investigating the problem as soon as possible? They, they didn't want anybody or any data to leave that room until we had all written Why didn't down. they want any data to leave the room? Because the first impressions of people have importance. So they want everybody takes out their, their paperwork uh, and they're, they're handed out, everybody's handed a package which I had never experienced before. You might have with the first accident, but I didn't. And there's papers inside and you write down where you were, what you were doing, what you saw, and everybody does that. That's the first thing that they do. Yeah, they, they lock us up for uh, um, an hour or so. They, they have, you know, even accidents, we have prepared for accidents and there's a whole set of procedures that are followed for an accident. 
And that means, you know, first is obviously the protecting the data and recording people's observations because you never know what's going to be important in the accident investigation. Gotcha. I, I just want to say immediately, Lauren, they assigned me and the head guy that was my friend, um, good friend uh, for the MER managers to start the timeline team. I mean, immediately. Let's talk about timelines. So, so in accident investigations, engineers put together a timeline of events to kind of figure out where where things went wrong. Timeline is where you actually go and sometimes down to milliseconds. You start from either somewhere either before the accident or at the accident, usually it's before or the, the failure, and you actually start writing down every piece of data that is of importance in your mind from different sources that happen every few seconds or every milliseconds in some case, all the way through the failure down to when you run out of data necessarily in this case. Well, and it's not just data, it's pertinent events. Oh yes, it's events, it's, and I had done a lot of timelines, I was pretty, pretty, I was well known for doing timelines, I really find mm -hmm. that interesting, not for an accident. Yeah, I know, you helped me a lot with my uh, science fair projects. The reason, <laughs> reason this is so important is when you're trying to figure out what went wrong, you don't have to go scrambling around talking to everybody or looking at different sources. It's all in front of you. Right. So anyway, we sat down in the conference room and each of the subsystem managers came in and immediately started giving us data at a time. And Lauren, I'm sitting here and these are grown men and women and they're giving me data and they're crying. I mean, it, it, you know, we were in shock, all of us. It was, it was intensely horrible. Okay, so they're sitting there and they're giving us data and, they're, and their tears are coming out and we're writing down the data. We just keep going, you know, because we're space cadets. We're not going to stop doing our job. It's a Saturday. At some point, you had to call me. Right. At some point, we remembered we had a daughter, yeah. <laughs> and I and think, Dad, you're the one that called her, correct? Yeah, yeah mean, you Dad Tom called me. was uh, the busy one in the morning, so, yeah, I probably called you and talked to you. And uh, uh, I, from my memory, I know I was at home. And I don't even I don't even remember what day it was because I, I was you were, you were 13 or 14. I was a right? freshman in high school and I was pretty used to being home alone because I'm an only child and you guys, you know, I would come home by myself a lot. Um, so that makes it, it sound really good. <laughs> I am an independent woman. Uh, and I got the call from dad. And all I, the, the main thing I remember is he, you were some, saying something like, I don't know if you've been seeing the reports like I was watching the news as a kid <laughs> and you, were, you said, but we lost the orbiter. And at the time, I did not know what the word orbiter meant. So I didn't really realize the seriousness. I was like, uh, OK. And then you said the space shuttle. And when that I mean, because I knew just how much you guys were working on the space shuttle so much. So I knew that it was going to be serious. So that's all I remember, and I I think I just remember being like, well, I it's gonna be a rough couple of days, couple of days. It was a rough couple of months. Just a year, yeah. um, just alone, yeah. But what was interesting for me, so I remember knowing that I wasn't gonna be talking to you guys all day, and my friend Sarah came over because I was I knew I was gonna be by myself, and we were I don't know I think you found this a couple days later but I made this montage or like a collage of all the astronauts that had died in the shuttle and I was so embarrassed that I made it that I hid it under my bed and I never ended up giving it to you guys. Right. So so when you were in college I remember we had we like it was like 
right when you started college or a little after, we had decided to move to another house. Yeah. So I was I had the joyful experience of cleaning out your room. Yeah. And yeah. I pulled out this montage underneath a collage. It. I called it a montage on accident. <laughs> and I just sat there and started crying. Oh. <laughs> because I knew it I didn't know when you'd made it. I just knew that it was something that you put together and it affected me quite it was actually a it's not a bad memory. This is a, a special memory, but it affected me very strongly and I I'm I just looked at it, you know, and so it I didn't know you did it the day that we called you or dad called you. It but was either that day I just I mean, you guys were working long hours so I had ample time to make it you guys definitely weren't home and I think I made it with my friend Sarah who lived across or around the corner. And uh, I don't know why I didn't give it to you guys, but for some reason I just felt embarrassed to, well, you know. It meant to me when I found it. So well, I'm glad. Just to let you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but Lauren, I will tell you that we were probably the worst parents for about two weeks there because we relied on uh, your was Two months. Two months. We were in such shock, and we were the mission from God was you know, on our back to figure out what had gone wrong. That, we relied on you totally to um, go to school, come back. I think we did ask Sarah's parents to uh, let you get off the bus at their house, which was right around the corner. Yeah, maybe. that might have been right. Yeah. And then, then they would make sure you got in, and then you would get home, and we would call you and make sure you were all right. But I think there was about at least six weeks there where we hardly saw you. And I think back about it now, and I just feel a lot of guilt as a mother about that. You know I what mean, I mean? You shouldn't feel guilty because I, that's not what I think about when I think about this time. I just remember you guys being in a lot of pain and, uh, it was just on me just to not say anything about it, you know, like, and I, and I, I kind of liked being by myself. So. You know, really, I'm, I'm sure it was a growing experience for you, but it's not a way I would have liked to have been. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. I mean, uh, if, but if anyway. there's, if there's anything you should if if I can relieve any kind of guilt, I don't think you should feel guilty about that. Well, I will tell you, we lived and breathed in that. At least I did. I think Dad was over in, in with his people in the other building. But I lived and breathed in the mission evaluation room and in the conference rooms for at least two months, working all hours. I never saw the sun. And I will tell you an interesting thing that's very special. People all around the area would bring food to the Murr for us. They would send us food. Outback sent us steaks and broccoli. If you've ever had cold steak and broccoli, it's pretty funny, but we loved it. Those steaks were good. They were good, and the broccoli was good. It's cold, too. They would bring, we'd have people that would send kolaches. I don't know if people in New York or. Oh, yeah. No one understands what kolaches are. These are only a southern thing, which I have found out moving to New York. No one knows what a kolache is. They don't have them here in New Orleans either. (laughs) um, They're wonderful. They're like a sausage or a little hot dog inside of a. Uh, a bun with cheese they're good delicious but anyway they would bring food we we just ate what everybody was bringing us there was food all the time sent the whole the whole community of course was very space related around us and people were sending us stuff and another really strong memory i don't ever want to say any of these are happy memories was when president bush and his wife came to see us he actually walks into the conference room i'm working with about five other or six other guys and I heard like two minutes before he was coming, I called Gene, your dad, and he came over too. And he sat with us and talked to us and told us how proud he was that we were working the problem. And this is 
the older Bush, older Bush, older George Bush. Oh, and George H.W. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. and uh, and Barbara was with him. I'll never forget that. I mean, there's only two, you know, like ten of us in that conference room working on that daggum timeline. You know what I mean? Pulling data together, and he came over, and, and then of course he went to see other people too. But think about that. I will never forget the president sitting down with us, the, the ex-president, the retired president, sitting down with us and. It, it just helped a lot that he did that, and I will never forget that. I know that we could spend a whole other podcast talking about the investigation afterward, um, but I guess, Dad, what did you work on? I know that, because I, re- I came to visit Dad, and you had made up a mock-up of the wing, and it ha- it basically showed all, it, it, it kind of took your timeline, Mom, and put, like, all the events on the wing and how the wing started to fail and what caused it. So I guess what I'm curious to know is, did you guys suspect the foam right away once you knew it was the left side of the wing? Yeah, it was the 800-pound gorilla in the room. We didn't know the RCC for a long time. We right. didn't know that. We had no idea what it did, but we... Yes. Because we, we couldn't see. We, so. we pretty much knew it was the left wing early on because of the way the vehicle lost control, too. Right. right. And so what did you need to establish to know that the foam was the exact problem? Mom, you talked about, like, um, they made up a sample wing, right, and basically shot a bunch of foam at it. They shot foam at a couple of panels or one panel. I don't remember. It's actual panels of RCC that were shaped like they – and they punched a hole through it with the phone that they shot at it. Now, I was in a meeting, um, working on something else that I can tell you about another time in relation to this. And uh, this was a few months after the accident, I want to say, don't you think? It so it few- was months before you kind of clinched that. Oh, it, absolutely. The, yeah. I mean, but once we got that, it was everything was figured out after that. And one of the guys was upstairs on the ninth floor of building one, and he comes running down into my office, and he said, they just punched a hole through the RCC with a piece of foam. I'll never forget that. The whole room gasped. So the hole in the wing, what in, what ultimately did that cause, and why was it such an issue during reentry and not during other times of flight? Basically, you had all this gas coming in. It was still, the vehicle was moving, the gas would accelerate, create a lot of heat, shoot up through the top of the wing. Once the wing started to lose its shape, then the vehicle lost, started to lose its control and the thrusters couldn't control the vehicle and the vehicle started turning to a point where it couldn't be controlled anymore. The vehicle turns enough so that the heat gets so intense on parts of the vehicle and the force gets so intense that the vehicle starts just will break up. I mean, if you did the same thing with a plane, if the plane turned too far up, while going forward, it would totally disintegrate too. When did you see the video footage of the shuttle breaking apart? Was that, did you get to see, because the news reports saw that pretty quickly right away. Um, did you guys see that during the day or after? And, and- I was too busy working the timeline team, but I will tell you, we had one of our people, his brother or cousin called him up while we were in there and says, I just saw the shuttle break apart above my head. He was in Tyler, Texas, I think. That's that's how obvious it was to people on the ground seeing this coming in. I don't think Lauren and I've ever watched it because I didn't want to. I, I might have seen some of it. It's just like it's just like the first accident. And, and I don't I, have much memory of it. So. so no, I don't think we watched it. We were too busy doing what we were supposed to be doing, which was finding out what the heck had happened. And other people were looking at it, I'm sure, but Jean's team and mine maybe not so much. How that- how long did it take for you guys to feel? 
back to normal again. I mean, how long did the overall investigation take? How long were you guys grounded? You know, because you guys didn't launch again for years, right? At least two years. Well, the, the funny thing is prior to this accident, uh, the prior year was absolute hell for us yeah, because we had major problems on the orbiter that we worked behind the scenes to keep that vehicle flying. I don't want to say it that way. They were problems that we had to work. But we worked them extensively. We, we solved them. And, so we were, but we were tired. We were, we were really exhausted tired. when this accident happened. So, you know, we worked four or five months after the accident before things settled down. We closed out the accident and then we got into the mode of getting the vehicle ready for flight again. Not, not just the vehicle, Lauren, but how do we handle something so that we never would get into this situation again? Not, not just the phone, but if somebody has an issue like wanting to see a photo or if somebody has an alternate opinion, how do we make sure that person's heard? Because, you know, not everybody speaks up. And so we, our, our management and our teams and everybody came together and worked really hard to put together a system that nobody would not be heard and nobody's opinions would not be listened to. And I'm not just gonna, and, you know, I'm not gonna tell you that people didn't listen, just that they didn't take it, they didn't respond to it correctly, perhaps. Well, not perhaps. And I have to tell you, Lauren, by the time we were flying the shuttle, um, and I think the shuttle ended in 2011, I think it was, we had a team that was cooking and booking. I mean, the processes that were put together after that accident, people were listened to, Everybody's alternate opinions were put on the table. We came up with how would you rescue people? You know, could we get another vehicle up there? We actually had another vehicle always waiting to go up if there was a problem. We had the station, you know, we were doing station missions after that. The station became our safe haven. So we learned thousands of things, an unfortunate way of learning things, but we learned a lot of ways of how you don't make these kind of mistakes again. Because it's not this phone that's going to get you next time, right? It was going to be something else. One of the things I do remember at the time was NASA didn't get a lot of positive attention during this. I remember a lot of news reports were saying, you know, things about how NASA should have caught this. And I remember that also took a toll on you guys was the kind of negativity surrounding that. So how did that feel and how did the whole experience kind of change you? You know, I don't forward. think what people were saying bothered me. I was kicking myself plenty hard that I didn't need somebody else to, to kick me. When well, you say. I, I was angry in the fact that the press seemed to concentrate on the lack of the photo or the photo not being taken and ignored the fact that two, two flights prior to that, that a piece of foam broke off of the external tank, dented the bottom of the SRV and wasn't even addressed. I didn't really even see any articles on that. That to me was the bigger failure of NASA. Right. Uh, ignoring that uh, piece of data two flights prior. But I would counter, maybe they didn't see it, but we knew that we messed up there and that's why our whole uh, infrastructure, our, our whole process has changed so that if there's something that happens happened in a flight, maybe it didn't damage something very much, we were required to go and say, now what if this got worse? My regret is that uh, both NASA, both shuttle accidents seem to be uh, management failures uh, uh, in the decision-making process. Uh, well, I would counter, Gene, that... Well, I mean, the first failure they ignored uh, that it was the coldest flight ever. Yes, this flight, that's true. This flight 
They knew stuff was coming off the external tank, not just on the flight, two flights prior to that, but they knew they had problems with the foam after they had changed the procedures. Um, they didn't deal, deal with that adequately. You know, hindsight's always better. Yeah, it is. Hindsight is always better. Uh, but, you know, one the lesson I came out of this, be very careful of the decisions you make uh, and, and making sure you, you yeah. But you know, if you if you if you're not, if you, there's also the other side of it. You'll never launch if you don't take any risk. So I got to warn you that it is. You know how you you laugh about when people say, "Well, space is hard," and you get tired of that. I think what I would say is space is risky, and you have to manage risk. You if you do not accept any risk, you will never launch. But if you don't, but if you accept all risk, you're going to have an accident. So you have to find that balance with the space program. And that's why people say, well, space is hard. I would tell you space is risky. And you have to know how to analyze your risk and make the right risk acceptance decisions. Just to clarify, when I say don't say space is hard, it's just to mean that we shouldn't use that as an excuse when things blow up. Oh, yes, I agree with I don't that. think anybody said space is hard after the Columbia disaster. I think that would have been kind of uh, offensive. Anyway, so let's end on a happy note. What was it like when you guys finally launched again? How how was that day for you guys? Well, we all worried. As soon as that thing, you know, as soon as the uh, main engine shut down, we always felt better. The SRBs came off, the ET came off. I would say that my favorite point was when we did the inspection of the wing leading edge and we didn't see any damage of, of significance at that time. Now, I, I can't tell you exactly what damage was seen on that first mission, but I don't think I rested until we landed on that mission. <laughs> There was no, oh, we launched, how wonderful. You know, it was more like, okay, what's our next thing to do? What's our next thing to do? So I don't think I ever found, uh, I think landings were always my favorite after that. <laughs> Launches were great, but landings were my favorite because I knew everybody got home safe, you know. Dad, what about you? Say? So, you know, the time we were grounded, this flight was about the same as the previous accident. Uh, it was, ex you know, very exciting, the, the next you know, successful mission, uh, seeing it go up, just a sense of relief, sense that we were back up here, worry. Worry, we, we, we lots always, of worry. Always worried uh, when we flew. But uh, once we got to orbit, uh, once we saw the uh, main engine shut down, get rid of the external tank, right. we were extremely happy. Well, thank you guys. This has been fantastic, and I know we talk about this a lot. We talked about it a lot when it happened, but it's always nice and, you know, somber to revisit it, but I'm glad that we do. And can, I, can I tell something to you? <laughs> sure. I want to thank you for being so strong during that time, for being the person you were to let us do this work, and we knew that you were not getting into trouble and you were taking care of yourself. And I was a pretty good kid. <laughs> you were a good kid, and but I don't know if I could have dedicated myself to that for those, especially those first two months, if I didn't know that I could have trusted you. So kudos to you too. Well, we definitely want, both couldn't have worked, done all the things we did. So you should years. consider yourself as a contributor to all right. what was done, okay? I'll take that. All right, well, thank you guys. This has been one of my favorite interviews, so. Uh, <laughs> you would say that. Yeah, I would. <laughs>